This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, so just to talk about this, uh, the basic outline of what I'll be covering tonight, I will be talking about NAFLD basics, and I will tell you what I mean by NAFLD. Um, NAFLD diagnosis and staging complications of NAFLD, and finally, management of NAFLD. So the first question is really, what is this thing called NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Um, So this is a disease that occurs when fat is deposited in the liver without other causes of fatty liver identified, and I'll go into some of the specifics a, a little bit later. But before I do that, I do want to kind of define the terms because I'm going to be throwing out some of these terms uh, throughout the course of the talk, and I want you to understand what all these different acronyms mean. So we really think of NAFLD, or as some say NAFLD, as our umbrella term. And underneath this umbrella falls NAFL, non-alcoholic fatty liver, which means fat in the liver without significant inflammation or liver cell damage, and NASH, which stands for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And this means that there's fat in the liver with a characteristic pattern of inflammation as well as liver cell damage. Some people will use these terms interchangeably, but that's actually incorrect. Um, It is important to kind of understand that these are technically two different subconditions under the umbrella of NAFLD. Now, why is that important? We know for sure that NASH can contribute to liver fibrosis or scar. And just thinking about, well, what does that really mean? When you cut yourself, you get a a scar. And what's really happening in the liver is that as there's inflammation sparked by the fat, um, the liver really tries to repair itself. And as the liver is trying to repair itself, it does lay down scar tissue. So in people who have NASH, they can develop this liver scar, and about 20 to 30% of patients will actually go on to develop cirrhosis. And I think sometimes when people hear the term cirrhosis, you think, well, I'm not a drinker. What are you talking about? Um, Well, that's exactly why the title of this disease is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. We know that, but any chronic liver disease can cause cirrhosis. So cirrhosis does not equal alcohol. Cirrhosis means extensive scarring of the liver, and any chronic liver disease can cause that. We also know that people who have NASH and liver scar can develop hepatocellular carcinoma, or HCC. And this is primary cancer of the liver. So what we used to think was that patients who had NAFL would always stay in this category. And we thought that they were at very low or really even zero risk of developing cirrhosis. But In the past several years, we have actually seen that there have been studies demonstrating that patients who were in this so-called benign category have actually progressed onto cirrhosis. We're not exactly sure why that is. One of the thoughts is, you know, are these patients actually flipping back and forth in between NAFL and NASH? Or is it that maybe we misclassified the patients when they were first diagnosed and put them incorrectly into this low-risk category? 
or it could be that this actually does lead directly to cirrhosis. Um, there aren't that many high-quality long-term studies, including large groups of patients, so this is really something that we are still learning about. Um, so now, with NAFL, we have to think, who is at risk? So there's something called the so-called metabolic syndrome, which you may or may not know about. And the metabolic syndrome includes several conditions, including obesity, particularly people who have more central obesity, or if you think about body fat distribution, more in an apple-type distribution rather than a pear, meaning that the fat tends to accumulate in the middle of the abdomen and the legs are skinny, versus the pears, where the fat kind of really deposits below the waist. So just think about those two fruits. The apples are the ones who are at greater risk of metabolic syndrome and fatty liver. Um, patients with high blood sugar or diabetes or prediabetes, high blood pressure or hypertension, and high cholesterol and or low good cholesterol, the HDL. So really all of these conditions are seen commonly in people who have fatty liver disease, and we tend to think of fatty liver as being kind of the liver manifestation of the metabolic syndrome. Um, we think that it's probably one, uh, obesity and some predisposition to develop these liver diseases is, uh, is what these patients have in common. Um, rather than one of these things kind of causing the fatty liver. But it's one of those diseases where it's kind of a, lot, a vicious cycle where the diabetes may affect the fatty liver, fatty liver may lead to diabetes. Obesity also increases risk of diabetes, increases risk of fatty liver. So um, the thought is maybe there is one common risk factor for all of these conditions. Um, there are other risk factors which have emerged as kind of the non-classic risk factors for fatty liver. Some of them do include Hispanic ethnicity, which may in part be related to some genetic factors that have been identified. Um, polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, which is a syndrome seen in younger women, and they can actually have cystic ovaries, but they also have elevated levels of male hormones, such as testosterone and uh, DHEA. Um, and a lot of these patients have other metabolic syndrome risk factors, such as obesity and diabetes or prediabetes. Um, patients with HIV also are at increased risk for fatty liver disease, and it's thought that it may be related to the disease or the medications or an interaction between the two things. Um, sleep apnea is also very common in patients with fatty liver, and hypothyroidism is common as well, though hypothyroidism is, is common in, uh, in general. Um, so, you know, I know the title of my talk was this silent epidemic, and Anytime you have a talk about fatty liver, you've got to bring up the obesity prevalence maps from the CDC. And I think this is going to cycle through once or twice, really showing you that the prevalence of obesity in the U.S., as I think you're all aware, has really increased significantly over time. And you'll see as uh, these slides cycle through that more and more states in the U.S. have this higher obesity prevalence um, in the range of 30 to 35 percent or more. In California, we have a little bit less obesity than the rest of the country, but again, obesity very prevalent, um, very common, and there is that strong link with fatty liver disease. So looking at this map, it kind of makes sense to me why we are seeing this epidemic of fatty liver starting to explode. 
So with that, I want you just to think for a moment after seeing those maps and seeing that such a large proportion of the U.S. population is obese, and I've mentioned the link already, what do you think the prevalence is of NAFLD in the general U.S. population? And what do you think the prevalence is of NASH, this more aggressive subtype of NAFLD in the U.S. population? If you want to yell out a number, great. If you want to keep it to yourself, that's fine. But I'll let you just kind of sit with that and think about it for a minute. 35 and 10, those are really excellent guesses. Did you look at my slides beforehand? <laughs> so, yeah, pretty, pretty darn close. So there, there's a range. 16 to 29% of the U.S. population uh, has NAFLD, um, and this really mirrors the prevalence of obesity in the U.S., um, whereas NASH, the more aggressive subtype, probably about 5% of the U.S. population. And if you think about this on a population scale and thinking about how many people are actually in the U.S., that is a huge number of patients. So this is a really huge public health problem, um, and it's something that people really do need to be aware of. Um, and in thinking about other uh, patient subgroups, in patients who are obese, about two-thirds will have fatty liver. Almost all patients who are being evaluated for bariatric or weight loss surgery um, probably about somewhere between 50 and 75% of patients with diabetes have fatty liver. And the more aggressive subtype NASH, of those patients who have NAFLD, 10 to 30% have NASH. And 20% of obese adults have NASH as well. So again, big, big problem. So, you know, how would you know if you have NAFLD? I mentioned, again, it's a silent epidemic. Well, it's because many patients will have no symptoms at all, up to 77%, in fact. If they do have symptoms, they may not be very helpful in terms of guiding us as physicians or other healthcare providers to the fact that fatty liver may be present. Fatigue is very, very common, present in 50 to 75% of patients with fatty liver. But the problem is, is that fatigue is a common feature of many different diseases. So if someone says they're fatigued, that unfortunately doesn't help me because there's a huge long list of things that can cause fatigue, and fatty liver is one of them. The other reason why fatigue is an important feature of fatty liver is that sleep apnea is very common in our patients with fatty liver as well, and that can certainly contribute to daytime fatigue. If symptoms are present, right-sided abdominal pain may be present, and that's because that's where your liver is. Um, and we think that the reason why patients will have pain in the setting of fatty liver uh, is that as the fat deposits, it can actually stretch out the lining or the capsule of the liver. And that's really where the nerves are in the liver. They're not on the inside. They're really on the outside, um, sensing problems with the with the external parts of the liver. But what I always tell my patients is that just because you have pain and you have an established diagnosis of fatty liver, that does not necessarily mean that your liver disease is getting worse. It doesn't mean that because you have pain that your liver is sicker than someone who doesn't have pain. Pain is something I think we really still don't understand very well. Um, but for, again, for whatever reason, some patients with fatty liver will have the pain in part related to the stretch of the capsule of the liver. 
Other things that might make you suspicious of having fatty liver is the presence of risk factors. And I've already mentioned the high prevalence of fatty liver in patients who are obese or have diabetes. Lab testing may also clue you or your healthcare providers into the fact that fatty liver may be present. Um, with the liver enzymes, specifically ALT and AST, being elevated, and usually ALT will be higher than the AST. One thing to be aware of is that as hepatologists, as liver specialists, we kind of use a different range for normal liver enzymes than your local lab might. And I'll explain why that is. It's not that we're just you know, crazy and setting a really low threshold. It's that when the labs actually develop what their normal values are, they derive that from the general population that's actually getting their blood drawn. Now, I've told you about a third of the U.S. population has fatty liver disease. So if they're deriving their normals from this abnormal population, you can see how that can really skew the normal values to being higher than they probably should be. Um, a nor normal ALT, just so you know, for a woman should be less than 20 to 25, and for a man should be less than 30 to 35. And I've seen some local labs say that an ALT of 60 is normal, and that's absolutely not true. For a woman, that's you know, close to three times upper limit of normal. Um, so other things that can clue you into the presence of fatty liver is... Uh, the appearance of fat on ultrasound, MRI, or CT scan. And this is also how a lot of patients will come to our attention, that they complain, I have pain on my right side. Appropriately, their primary care doctor will get an imaging study, and then they see, oh, the liver looks like it has fat in it, and that's what usually initiates a referral over to my clinic. So... You would think because fatty liver is so common, um, I haven't told you about the consequences yet, but just thinking that there are populations that are likely to have fatty liver, should we screen? If you look at the guidelines from the US, um, which is the American Association for the Study of uh, Liver Disease, ASLD, they don't recommend screening. The recommendations are a little bit vague in that they suggest a high level of suspicion and high-risk patients. They kind of stop short of saying that we should be screening these patients. Um, and part of this is related to cost. If you're thinking about screening you know, the at-risk U.S. population, which is probably, you know, again, about a third of the U.S. population, that can be quite costly. And if you don't yet have treatments that are cost-effective in reducing serious liver-related problems or liver-related death, then the screening may not make sense, though I suspect in the coming years this, this may change. The European guidelines, this is uh, European Association for the Study of the Liver, they, they're a little bit more prescriptive. They say you should screen all patients with obesity or metabolic syndrome by checking liver enzymes and ultrasound. I, I think this is a little bit overkill. Um, I think we really should be focusing on our highest risk patients, um, which tend to be patients with diabetes because they are the ones that are most likely to have advanced liver disease in the setting of fatty liver. I think it's premature to say we should screen everybody who is obese and everybody that has a metabolic syndrome problem, such as high blood pressure or high cholesterol. But again, that may change. So, you know, if you're healthcare provider does diagnose you with suspected fatty liver, 
should you see a liver specialist? And you would think as a liver specialist, I would say, well, absolutely, I want more patients. Let me tell you, my clinics are exploding. Um, it's very hard to get people in, and we're really trying to figure out how we can see the highest risk patients. Um, but why should you see a, a liver specialist if you have NAFLD? Well, one reason is to make an accurate diagnosis. We want to make sure that there are no other forms of liver disease because we've seen plenty of patients that were billed as fatty liver because it was kind of the right scenario. They were obese, they had diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. You probably have fatty liver. Most of the time you'll be correct but maybe about you know, 10, 15% of the time, you're gonna be wrong and you're gonna miss other liver diseases. We've diagnosed autoimmune hepatitis, viral hepatitis, you know, all other chronic liver diseases in patients with you just have fatty liver. So we, we still think it's important to rule out or eliminate other causes of liver disease. The other reason to see someone like me is that we want to determine the subtype of NAFLD you have, NAFL versus NASH. And I will tell you a little bit later why that's important. We also want to evaluate you for liver scar or fibrosis. Liver biopsy may be needed, though it's not needed in all patients. And I will talk about how I decide whether to biopsy someone or not. The other reason to see a liver specialist is for monitoring. If you are in that higher risk category of NASH or if you already have pre-existing liver scar, we want to make sure that there are no signs of uh, worsening. And particularly, if you have progressed to cirrhosis, you do warrant additional monitoring. We want to monitor blood work to make sure there are no signs of liver dysfunction. We want to see you periodically to make sure you're not showing signs of liver dysfunction. And because patients who have cirrhosis are at risk for liver cancer, we also want to be doing some sort of abdominal imaging study, like an ultrasound, CT scan, or MRI, to screen for liver cancer. So in definitely the higher risk patients, we absolutely want to be seeing these patients. It's just a challenge in figuring out who really, really needs to see us and who can kind of live in primary care. So how is NAFLD diagnosed? So several things. Um, we first want to make sure that there's actually fat in the liver. If there's no fat and if there was never any fat, it's probably not fatty liver, and I will say the one exception is if you have cirrhosis. Because as the liver disease progresses, the fat goes away, but the scar can still increase. But in general, we want to see that there has been fat, either on ultrasound, MRI, or biopsy. CAT scan or CT scan may not be good enough to eliminate the possibility of liver fat unless there's a lot of fat. So just because there's no fat on CT scan doesn't mean it's not there. As I mentioned, it's really important that we eliminate other causes of liver disease, and this is usually through an extensive panel of blood tests. Um, it's important to make a kind of clean diagnosis of NAFLD, that patients are drinking fewer than two drinks per day, um, and that they're not taking medications known to cause fatty liver, and two very common ones are prednisone, which is used to treat a lot of autoimmune conditions, allergies, um, as well as tamoxifen, which is a medication to prevent recurrence of breast cancer. Now, what I will say is that it is not always this clean. We like to say that NAFLD is this diagnosis of exclusion, that we've eliminated everything else, 
but we see that NAFLD coexists with other liver disease. We've seen this in our patients who have hepatitis B. About a quarter of our own patients in our clinic have hepatitis B and fatty liver. Patients who've had hepatitis C were cured of the virus, and then they went on to develop fatty liver. And we've had patients who have autoimmune hepatitis, other chronic liver diseases who also have fatty liver. So even though, yes, we do want to eliminate other causes of liver disease, it doesn't necessarily mean that fatty liver isn't also there. And then we also have patients who drink a little bit more than this, but maybe not quite to the threshold where we would say we think they have alcohol-associated liver disease. And that's a really interesting topic in terms of alcohol and fatty liver, and I have a little bit of information about that at the very end of the talk. Um, but again, I think this is just in the cleanest sense of the word. If you're drinking more than this, we can't technically say that it's just NAFLD. And then finally, a word about the medications. Yes, we know that prednisone and tamoxifen can certainly cause fatty liver, um, but Again, in the right scenario, if you have someone who is obese, diabetic, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and they also happen to be on prednisone, it's hard to say, well, it's definitely the prednisone. Maybe the prednisone is making it worse, but it's, it's really hard to kind of pin all of the fatty liver just on the prednisone. So not always such a clean diagnosis. So now what about liver biopsy? Now, I do not biopsy every patient that comes to see me, and that's something that patients always worry about. They show up and say, oh, no, I don't want you to do a biopsy, or I thought I was going to get a biopsy today. And a lot of times I don't. But the reason why I do biopsy is to make sure I'm classifying NAFLD accurately. I want to know, do they have NASH or NAFL? I want to determine fibrosis or scar stage, and I want to eliminate other causes of liver disease. Because the blood tests to look for other causes of liver disease are very good, but they're not perfect. Some of the blood tests to look for things like autoimmune hepatitis can also be abnormal in fatty liver. So sometimes we just we need that biopsy to say, okay, do you have just fatty liver? Do you just have autoimmune hepatitis, or do you have both? What I'm trying to target when I choose patients to do biopsy on is I'm trying to biopsy patients who have NASH or are likely to have advanced fibrosis. And that's because those are our higher risk patients. Ideally, I don't want to be biopsying the patients who are at low risk. So we do look at liver biopsy really as being the most reliable means for excluding other causes of liver disease or coexisting liver disease, and we still call it our gold standard for diagnosis and staging. But I kind of think it's a little bit of a tarnished gold standard. I'm still a big, big believer in liver biopsy, but I recognize that there are problems. So sampling error is a problem. I don't know if anyone here has had a liver biopsy or knows someone that's had it, but what we see is that a tiny little worm-like structure, a tiny little piece of liver comes out of this big thing. And we assume that what we're seeing in that tiny little sliver is representative of what's going on in the entire liver. Now, if the liver biopsy is an adequate specimen, if it's long enough, if it has enough samplings of portions of the liver called portal tracts, then we feel reasonably confident that the liver biopsy is telling us what's going on in the liver. 
But the problem is sometimes the liver diseases can be patchy. So, you know, maybe we picked an area that had a little bit more or a little bit less fibrosis. Or maybe when I biopsied you, you had a little bit less inflammation than you did when you had the blood drawn three months ago. The other issue is that when we do the biopsy through someone's side, which is our usual approach, we're going through sometimes several centimeters of fat, meaning that our needle is only so long, so it can be hard to get a really good specimen. And if the liver does have significant scar, like cirrhosis in particular, the specimen may, come, may not come out in a nice long piece. It may come out fragmented, and that affects our ability to accurately assess how much liver scar there is. There's also the risk of complications. So discomfort is very common. Thankfully, more serious complications like significant bleeding or death are not very common, but those risks are there. The other issue is the expense of the biopsy. So what we're paying for is my time, the pathologist's time, the radiologist to do the ultrasound, the cost of the ultrasound, the procedure area, nurse's time, patient takes the day off from work, their ride takes the day off from work, and think about kind of amplifying that across a third of the U.S. population, and then we'd run into even more problems with financing health care than we have right now. So this, for all of these reasons, this is why we cannot biopsy every single patient with suspected fatty liver. So thankfully, we do have other tools at our disposal. So this test, FibroScan, is the brand name for a test called transient elastography. So this is an ultrasound-based test. And what you're seeing here is a patient lying flat. And the tech is using this probe that kind of looks like an ultrasound-based probe. This is kind of an ultrasound-based modality. And what's happening is that the probe is placed to a similar uh, spot on the right side as to where we usually take our biopsies. And then what happens is that these shear waves are sent through the liver, usually about 10 times, and we're trying to measure how stiff is the liver. The stiffer the liver, the more likely it is that there is more liver scar. The pro of this test is that it's fast, actually several pros, it's fast, relatively cheap, um, it's non-invasive, it only requires three hours of fasting, and it doesn't require someone having a ride home. Um, so very many pros of this test. But there are things that can produce inaccurate results. Obesity, NASH, well, that's a problem, because these are the people we're doing this test on, and I just told you it's a great test. We may get inaccurate results sometimes. If there's a lot of liver inflammation, um, if the ALT is greater than 100, if there are other significant abnormalities of liver tests, if there's a lot of fat in the liver, this can lead to an overestimation of liver scar. Recent alcohol use, we think within maybe 24 to 48 hours, that can impact the results and maybe overestimate liver scar. And potentially uh, Hispanic ethnicity. And we found this in, uh, in our multi-center study looking at patients with fatty liver. And the thought was that on average these patients were a little bit shorter than some of our other patients. So maybe the distance between the, the ribs may be a little bit 
uh, a little bit smaller, and that may affect the accuracy or the validity of the test. Um, this has not necessarily been replicated in other studies, but a lot of other studies don't have high proportions of Hispanic patients in them. The other issue is that the fiber skin does require adequate experience to produce reliable results. So not every center is necessarily going to have a fiber scan. So, um, you know, this is not a test that is routinely done in primary care, and that's really because um, there's not the expertise um, to learn how to do this and do it well, because um, you really need to do it over and over and over again to get really good at it. In our clinic, we have several staff members, um, mostly our uh, LVN and medical assistants, who are doing this procedure, and they've all done at least hundreds at this point, and they're excellent. But when we first start seeing someone do this test, we get a more invalid results. So there, again, there is that learning curve. Um, so, you know, if I have a patient who wants to get a fiber scan, you know, close to home, if I don't necessarily know that center and understand what their experience is with it, I may say, well, you can do it, but I'm not sure if I'm going to trust the results. Whereas our center, you know, or another high-volume transplant or tertiary center, I know they're doing these things all the time, and I'm more likely to trust the results. Um, so why is it that an accurate diagnosis and staging are so important? Well, I will tell you. We really think of these as two different diseases, as I had alluded to. So I mentioned that both NASH and NAFL can cause liver fibrosis, and this is really just showing you the spectrum of liver fibrosis, or SCAR, which we stage on a scale of zero to four where zero is none and four is cirrhosis. And we think that it takes about seven years for patients with NASH to go from one fibrosis stage to the next, meaning that it may take about 28 years to go from zero to cirrhosis. Now, on the other hand, if a patient has NAFL, the less aggressive form, we think it takes twice as long to go from one stage to another, equating to about 56 years from zero to cirrhosis. Now, this may be the reason why initially we thought that NAFL could not progress to cirrhosis. If your disease starts when you're 40 or 50, most patients are not going to live long enough to develop cirrhosis and then signs of liver dysfunction or liver cancer. So the other thing to know is that the prognosis of NAFL does differ according to fibrosis stage. So in the patients who just have steatosis, and this is just a fancy word for fat, if they have just fat, we think that up to 40% may progress to NASH with or without mild degrees of fibrosis. And of these patients, 5 to 10% may progress to advanced or stage 3 fibrosis, and then here's this really, I think, meaningless range of 0 to 50% of the F3 patients may progress to cirrhosis. I think this really just illustrates that we have not studied this well yet, and there's a lot of uncertainty of who is and is not going to progress. But we think that a significant proportion of patients with cirrhosis will actually need liver transplant or die from liver-related causes. And a smaller proportion may develop liver cancer or have, or have had a cellular cancer. 
So I've mentioned uh, some of the liver-related consequences of NAFLD, but it's really important to know that there are other, uh, other major causes of death in patients who have fatty liver. And in fact, liver is not the primary cause of death in many of these patients. Heart disease is the leading cause of death in patients with fatty liver, which I think is not really surprising because we're dealing with a group of patients who have other risk factors for heart disease. And it has been demonstrated in several studies that fatty liver actually adds to the risk of heart disease in addition to the classic risk factors that we think about. Cancer is very, very common in patients with fatty liver, and some of this is liver cancer, but some of this are other types of cancer, such as breast cancer, colon cancer, you name it. And then the number three leading cause of death is end-stage liver disease, so liver failure related to cirrhosis. So going back to why I biopsy patients, it's very important for me to understand how severe their liver scar is, and that's because the severity of the liver fibrosis is the most important predictor of how patients will do. Patients who have more advanced stages of fibrosis, stage 3 and 4, are much more likely to have liver-related death. We also know that patients with NAFLD are at risk for liver cancer, as I mentioned, and this risk is seven to eight-fold greater than the general population. The risk in NASH cirrhosis is not totally clear, but based on the few studies that have been published, the risk appears to be anywhere from 65 to 15% after five to 10 years of follow-up. Unlike other liver diseases where liver cancer tends to develop only in the setting of cirrhosis, we're not sure that cirrhosis may need to be present for patients to develop liver cancer. Though the true risk of liver cancer in non-cirrhotic NASH is really not clear. Um, there have only been a couple of studies that have actually looked at this, and even though they did a really nice job of trying to account for misdiagnosis of lack of cirrhosis, there's still concern that some of these patients may have actually been cirrhotic. So I would say this risk of liver cancer in the absence of cirrhosis is not very clear, but much, much lower than if cirrhosis is present. So... Me being a transplant hepatologist and interested in NASH, it's important that I know that NASH is actually increasing as a reason why people need liver transplantation. And one of the reasons why this is happening is that hepatitis C, and you could barely see it at the end of this graph here, but just trust me in knowing that hepatitis C has gone down substantially as a cause of end-stage liver disease and need for liver transplant, which is an amazing thing because there are wonderful drugs out there that can actually cure hepatitis C. We don't have that yet for fatty liver disease. But thankfully, again, so many fewer patients will need transplant. Um, but what we are seeing is that NASH is increasing as an indication for liver transplant, and it really is neck and neck with alcoholic liver disease. What we see in women is that NASH, in this red line here, is the number one reason for people that need liver transplant. So NASH is the number one indication for transplant in women, 
alcohol-related liver disease is the leading indication for transplant in men. So these are really the two groups of patients that we are doing transplants for. And a lot of these patients will also have uh, liver cancer at the time of transplant as well. So I've talked to you about the complications of fatty liver disease, both liver and outside of the liver. And I want to talk with you a little bit about what treatments may be available that can improve NASH. Now, I don't know if any of you were hoping for a silver bullet. I am sorry to say I do not have a silver bullet for you. What I'm going to tell you may be a little bit boring. I know supplements are very, very popular to treat a variety of conditions, but unfortunately, there have not been really any supplements, um, with rare exception, that have been shown to be beneficial to treat fatty liver disease. One of the other issues is that a lot of supplements that are out there we don't know what's in them. And this has uh, really emerged as a big problem, that what is on the label may not match what is actually in the pill that you are taking. And what you're taking may end up being toxic to the liver rather than helpful. These things also tend to be quite expensive. So for most supplements, I say, you know, really, it's not necessary. It may be harmful and it's very likely to be expensive. There are a few that I may be okay with, and we can, I'm sure that will be some of the questions that I'll address at the end. So what I'm gonna tell you, again, is very, very boring and probably things that, that you've heard already, that weight loss is extremely important. So weight loss has actually been studied uh, to treat fatty liver disease, and the threshold of weight loss that is necessary to improve NASH and liver fibrosis is 7 to 10% of the baseline weight, which may be a lot for some people. You know, if you're starting out at 300, 350 pounds, that's a lot of weight. And fewer than 10% of patients will actually achieve a sustained weight loss of this amount. But if they do, they're likely to have uh, excellent long-term benefits on their liver disease as well as their overall health. And how are you going to lose the weight? Well, one, one thing that's extremely important are dietary changes. Um, so I counsel my patients on the importance of portion control and avoidance of simple carbohydrates, particularly avoiding fructose-sweetened beverages. And you can see the alarming amount of sugar that is in each and every one uh, of these drinks down here. Um, and thankfully, UCSF does not allow the sale of any sugar-sweetened beverages on campus, and I think that's a great thing. Um, when I'm talking with my patients, I really try to dig into the details of what are you drinking, um, because sometimes it may not be obvious that you know, a patient may be drinking two cans of soda per day, and when you add that up, that is 300 calories per day, which then equates to 2,100 calories per week. 2,100 calories with zero nutritional value and contributing to weight gain, insulin resistance, and fatty liver. So I think everyone should not drink sugar-sweetened beverages, but particularly if you have fatty liver, you should definitely not drink this. I also think you shouldn't drink fruit juice. Even if it's kind of 100% natural juice, you're still mostly drinking kind of liquid sugar. And if you tried to eat the amount of fruit that it takes 
to make that one glass of juice, you would not be able to do it. And you'll have fewer of the health benefits that you do from actually eating the fruit. You'll feel less full if you drink juice rather than eating a piece of fruit. So much better off eating fruit than drinking it. Another thing that's extremely important, again, for general health, but also for fatty liver disease, is exercise. And exercise has been studied in various forms and has been shown to reduce liver fat when patients were compared before and after um, using MRI. And the specific thresholds for exercise that need to be met to have an impact are at least 150 minutes per week of aerobic exercise, and that's in the moderate to vigorous range, and I'll tell you what that really means, or resistance training, 45 minutes a day, three days per week. And these really match the CDC recommendations for physical activity in the general population. So I will tell you, if I'm first meeting a patient in my clinic, and if they've never exercised, I will not mention these amounts of time because that's a really surefire way to scare someone out of my clinic and never come back because they'll worry I can't do that and she's going to get mad at me if I come back and I haven't done that. So I, I really try to individualize my counseling and try to work with the particular patient to try to figure out what exercise is feasible to them, what can they physically do, and what are they actually going to stick to? Because a lot of times I hear, oh, I have a treadmill or I have an elliptical or a stationary bike, and they've had it for 10 years and they're not using it. So my next question is, well, how many pieces of clothing are hanging on that piece of exercise equipment? And also, what makes you think you're going to do it now versus before? Um, so I think it's really important to have these detailed conversations and really kind of the back and forth of planning. What are you going to do for exercise? What is really going to work for you? Um, and then thinking about what is categorized as light, moderate, or vigorous exercise. So light exercise is walking slowly, working on the computer, cooking, washing dishes. Moderate, walking briskly, light biking, vacuuming, mowing the lawn. And then vigorous, jogging, fast biking, Zumba, which I am a huge proponent of because I'm also a Zumba instructor. Um, and then you know shoveling or carrying heavy loads. Um, but really, even, even though I've categorized these specific activities as moderate and vigorous, I'm really thinking of this cartoon here. This is a cartoon version of uh, a scale that was developed for exercise physiologists to look at rate of perceived exertion. And this is supposed to correlate with the heart rate that patients may be generating. So I really want my patients to get into this range. And sometimes people are really down in this range that, you know, I'm strolling for an hour with my dog that stops every two minutes to sniff the grass or the fire hydrant or whatever. So I really encourage people to kind of increase the intensity of exercise if they're already doing something. And the nice thing about that is that it might actually decrease the amount of time that they need to exercise. So maybe that hour of that light stroll may not be achieving that much metabolically. And if they increase the intensity, maybe it's only 15 or 20 minutes. And it's, you know, they're going to get more benefit in that way. So 
I do know, though, that there are a lot of barriers to exercise, particularly in this patient population. And I had mentioned already obstructive sleep apnea. That can contribute to fatigue and headache, which is going to make it really hard to kind of get that oomph to start exercising. Osteoarthritis can cause pain, decrease mobility. Depression can lead to decreased activity and decreased motivation. There may be balance problems, generalized weakness, um, because we do think about this thing called sarcopenic obesity, um, which is basically reduced muscle mass despite um, excess body weight. Um, there can also be some fat deposition in the muscles, which can actually decrease the muscle strength and the muscle functioning, kind of like thinking about a ribeye steak that has that nice marbling. The same thing can happen to the muscles. Um, and then finally, potentially cognitive deficits. So in thinking about what is this prescription for exercise, we have to think about using different behavioral strategies. And these are the things that I kind of have in mind when I'm talking with the patient and working with them and trying to figure out how can I get you to exercise. Thinking about, well, how can I motivate them? Some people may be motivated by, I don't want my liver to fail. I don't want a transplant. So I'm going to do whatever I have to to keep my liver healthy. Are these goals attainable? Again, sometimes the first time people meet me, I say, okay, what are you going to do for exercise? How many days per week? Well, I'm going to exercise every day, an hour each day. Well, that's great if you do that, but you know what? It's okay if you don't. And why don't you set that goal of exercising maybe one or two days a week just to start and do that for a while and then gradually ramp it up. You want their goals to be measurable. Again, number of days, number of minutes. You want them to have a memory of what their plan is once they leave my office. Having positive thoughts around exercise. I think, again, for people who may not have exercised before, there's that dread of, oh, I have to exercise. It's going to feel bad. I'm going to feel bad afterwards. And really trying to get into that positive mindset of, yeah, it might be hard to start, but this is going to have such a great impact on your health, and ultimately you're going to feel better. You want to reinforce any behaviors that uh, people are already engaging in. Again, if someone is already walking for exercise, even if it's at the strolling pace, I give them that positive reinforcement of, great, you are doing something, and that is awesome, but I want you to ramp it up a little bit. Environmental support. So a lot of people think about you know, walking as a great form of exercise, which it is. Again, it's accessible. Unless you live in an unsafe neighborhood, then walking may not be realistic for everyone. Have to think about stress management. Again, I have patients who have you know, two jobs plus. Um, maybe they're driving two hours to and from work every day, and they're the breadwinner and the caregiver for their family. And adding on exercise may be additional stress for them. Social support. Now, if you have kind of a partner in crime to do your exercise, maybe they're going to hold you accountable, and you'll hold them accountable, and it's going to be more fun and a more positive social interaction rather than this task of exercise. And then fi finally, problem solving. If you see, okay, well, this person may have the time, how can I figure it out to really put exercise into their schedule and kind of book that appointment for them to do exercise for themselves. So <clears throat> we do know that um, despite our counseling uh, with uh, the importance of uh, improved eating habits and exercise, it's still really hard to lose weight. And particularly if, if you have a body mass index of 40 or above, 
and you haven't successfully lost weight in the past, it's going to be really challenging. So I, I am actually a big proponent of bariatric surgery. And I think some people think about this, well, it's a failure. No, it's really hard to lose weight. I told you only 10% of people get the amount of weight loss that they need. So I look at bariatric surgery as a really important tool to help manage medical problems for these patients. And the procedures that we think about being most helpful are sleeve gastrectomy, basically cutting out a big chunk of the stomach and leaving the patient with a tiny remnant stomach. Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, I think this is the one that people know the most about. It's been around for a long time. Lap band, I don't love because there are a lot of long-term complications related to the foreign body. Um, we do see that with bariatric surgery, there can be improvement in NAFL and NASH, as well as improvement in liver fibrosis. Though if a patient has to progress to cirrhosis, it may be challenging to actually do bariatric surgery. But if the patient is at a center that has expertise with this patient population and the surgeon has experience operating on patients with cirrhosis, then it can be successfully carried out. But the operation of choice is a laparoscopic sleeve gastrectomy. And we're lucky to have one of our transplant surgeons, Dr. Andy Posselt, um, also be a bariatric surgeon. So he does our sleeve gastrectomies in our liver patients. Now, I mentioned that the leading cause of death in fatty liver disease is cardiac disease. So it's really important that the metabolic syndrome problems are well-treated in patients with fatty liver. Um, because this is a common question that I get from patients and physicians alike. Well, can I use a statin? Is that going to hurt my liver? Um, and a lot of patients might have stopped the statin before they saw me because the liver enzymes were elevated. And what I will tell you is that statins are absolutely safe for use in NAFLD. And we used to think that, that they might actually help fatty liver because some patients may have some uh, improvement in their liver enzymes. There may be reduced risk of liver-related death or hepatocellular cancer. But when statins were studied in a well-controlled manner, it did not look like they had an independent impact on improvement in fatty liver. So statins are recommended for treatment of elevated cholesterol or heart disease, but not recommended specifically for fatty liver. Metformin, the way that it works, for all intents and purposes, it should help fatty liver. Um, and some studies have shown improvement in liver biopsy and liver enzymes. But again, when this drug was studied in a well-controlled manner, it did not appear to have an independent impact on fatty liver disease. But it is safe for use in fatty liver, and it's a really good drug, and it may have some important anti-cancer effects. So these are two drugs which are, I think, really important tools in the treatment of diabetes and hyperlipidemia, um, but they shouldn't be used just for treatment of fatty liver. So what do we have to treat fatty liver? Well, it's not much. Um, so one important point is that only patients who have biopsy-proven NASH actually need liver-specific treatment. And what we have available to us now is vitamin E and pioglitazone. So pioglitazone, Actos, is an older medication that is used to treat diabetes. Um, so these two medications, pioglitazone and vitamin E, were compared with placebo for treating patients who had biopsy-proven NASH. It's important to note that in this study, patients were only non-diabetics. 
And what was seen was that the patients who were treated with vitamin E had much more improvement than the patients who were treated with placebo or sugar pill. They also had more of a response than patients treated with pioglitazone. It looks like the pioglitazone-treated patients did have a substantial response, but because of the, the way the statistical analysis was done, we can't definitively say that pioglitazone was effective in this study. Another thing that I think is important to note is that there's about a 20% response rate of placebo or a sugar pill, probably because people changed their behavior when they were in the study. Um, so in practice, what I do is when patients have biopsy-proven NASH, I use vitamin E regardless of whether they are or are not diabetic. That is against the official guidelines, but we don't have any data to suggest that vitamin E is dangerous in patients with diabetes, and I don't really have anything else to give them just yet. You can potentially use pioglitazone. I don't like that drug because it causes weight gain. And if we're telling patients to lose weight and we give them a drug that causes them to weight gain, well, that gain weight, I think that's pretty awful. Um, and also, there are much, much better drugs to treat diabetes these days than pioglitazone. So there's a lot of work being done for treatment of fatty liver, and some of the drugs that are actually on this slide have since been shown to not be effective. But what I will show you is that there are a lot of different targets um, that are being looked at for treatment of fatty liver. So some of this is um, the formation or deposition of fat within the liver, as well as inflammation and liver cell death. Um, liver scar is being targeted as well. And then at the level of the intestine, there are a lot of drugs that are looking at blocking absorption of fat um, or changing the, the bacterial makeup of the gut um, because we think that may, have, uh, may play a role in development of fatty liver disease. Um, but we're, we're still far away from that silver bullet that I'm hoping for. Um, there are three drugs that are in phase three clinical trials right now, and I think these are probably the drugs that are closest to being approved. Um, Obetacolic acid may be approved uh, in the spring. I'll actually hopefully hear more about that next uh, this week, actually, at our National Liver Conference. Um, this drug is currently approved for treatment of another liver disease, but not approved for treatment of fatty liver. Um, and we think that there are at least 40 other medications that are currently in phase one and phase two trials. There are others in phase three as well. Um, but phase three is kind of the, um, the large-scale clinical trials where um, we're trying to figure out, is the drug effective and you know, what dose is the most effective and safe for the particular condition. So there will be a lot coming out in the coming years. Um, so just to talk a little bit about who should be managing these patients. So, you know, I've mentioned a lot that these patients um, are typically referred by primary care, and they have a lot of conditions that the primary care doctor treats. So I developed this flow diagram to think about, well, you know, how should we, how should we decide who comes to hepatology and who really owns the patient? So um, the squares in blue are primary care and green hepatology. So it's usually the primary care provider that suspects fatty liver. 
Um, and then they refer to hepatology where we do our diagnostic evaluation and think about fibrosis and staging. And we further determine, do they have NASH or do they have NAFL? And if they have uh, NASH, particularly if they have fibrosis of at least stage two, then we can think about treating them with vitamin E, pioglitazone, or referring for a clinical trial. And then we do want to follow their fibrosis stage over time, either with fibroscan or biopsy. If the patients are in their earlier stages of disease, then they can probably live in primary care with close monitoring and thinking about doing serial fibroscan. And if there are signs of worsening, then the patient can come back to hepatology. If they have cirrhosis, these patients absolutely should be followed by a hepatologist. And we're looking for signs of decompensation or liver failure, liver cancer, and we're looking for another complication called varices. Um, and again, thinking about clinical trial. Um, and then really all NAFLD patients should be counseled on weight loss by both primary care and hepatology. And the primary care provider should be diagnosing and managing the metabolic syndrome comorbidities. And they should be monitoring kidney function, as that is also another complication of fatty liver and the metabolic syndrome. So before I conclude, I do want to talk a little bit about alcohol. I'll just have a couple of slides, because this, this is a common question I get. So is it safe to drink alcohol if I have NAFLD? If so, how much? We don't really know. We're still trying to figure this out, though there have been more and more data that have come out over time. Um, so maybe not best to, uh, to pair your McDonald's with a lot of Pinot Noir, but <laughs> just to tell you what we do know. Um, there was a thought initially that uh, a little bit of alcohol, modest drinking, may actually prevent NASH. And this was based on a snapshot in time, looking at a group of patients, and those who drank a little bit tended to have a lower risk of NASH than those who didn't drink at all. However, when these patients were followed over a longer period of time, it was found that any alcohol use may actually prevent improvement in NAFLD and may increase the fibrosis progression. Once NASH or NAFL is diagnosed, modest or moderate alcohol intake may prevent improvement in NAFL or NASH, as I've mentioned. And binge drinking, that we know is bad. That's bad for everybody. Um, but it can be associated with fibrosis progression in patients who do have pre-existing NAFLD. So really what we have from our guidelines are not much. No specific recommendations uh, regarding safe alcohol intake in patients who have established NASH. Now, what do I actually tell patients? So if you have cirrhosis, if you have advanced fibrosis, you shouldn't drink at all. It can increase your risk of liver cancer, it can in increase your risk of liver failure, and if you have cirrhosis, you may need a transplant someday, and I don't want a little bit of alcohol to get in the way of you getting on a transplant list if you need one. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, if you have NAFL, no fibrosis, normal liver enzymes, can you drink a little bit Maybe. I don't, we don't really, really know. Um, you know, I would say if a patient has reached the age of 70 or above, if they have NAFL, if they have no fibrosis, and they're a light drinker and they haven't had fibrosis progression, they can probably continue doing what they've been doing. But it's really that middle group of patients, NASH, NASH with no fibrosis, NASH with a little bit of fibrosis, 
I don't know exactly what to tell my patients, to be honest. And I'm frank with them in saying that I don't have great data to say this is okay, this is not. So I do err on the side of being a little bit more conservative and advising the patients who definitely have liver scar and NASH to really avoid alcohol completely. So to summarize everything... I hope I've shown you that NAFLD is common, and most patients with metabolic syndrome will have NAFLD, with at least 16 million in the U.S. having NASH. NAFLD is the umbrella term that includes NAFLD and NASH, with NASH having a much greater risk than NAFLD of progressing on to cirrhosis. We do need biopsy to accurately characterize and stage NAFLD. The leading cause of death in fatty liver is heart disease. NAFLD is an important contributor to liver cancer as well as need for liver transplant. And its management hinges on weight loss, exercise, avoidance of simple carbohydrates, and metabolic syndrome control. With vitamin E and potentially pioglitazone being used only for biopsy-proven NASH, but there are many, many drugs in the pipeline for NASH and fibrosis. We still have a lot of work to do for fatty liver, not just the treatments. We need to figure out the best method for screening and diagnosis, which patients are at greatest risk for disease progression, who goes from NAFL to NASH, who, uh, who has NASH or NAFL progresses to cirrhosis, and then what are the impacts of future treatment on outcomes? Will they reduce the need for liver transplant? Will they reduce the risk of liver cancer and liver-related death? And what impact will these treatments have on cardiovascular disease? And I am excited about the drugs that are coming out, but one of the other lingering questions is, who gets treated and for how long? So I think, fortunately or unfortunately, I think I do have job security um, because, again, there's still a lot of work to do, both in clinical care as well as in research. So with that, I thank you. All right, first question. So when you got to the slides about what patients can do to improve the condition, the, the, the headline said NASH. Mm -hmm. It all seemed focused on NASH, but are you saying that those uh, things that you would that patients should do are not appropriate or not? They don't work for people with disease? Right. So the question was, when talking about all of these treatments, I said NASH. Does it mean that the other treatments are not effective or not needed for NAFL? So with medication therapy, we think that only people who have NASH and or liver fibrosis actually need medications. But if you have just fat in the liver... The counseling is really just the lifestyle modification, improvement in eating habits, reduction in calories, sugar, increased exercise, and weight loss. But the point is, um, you know, people who have NASH are more likely to actually develop cirrhosis, liver failure, liver cancer, so they definitely need liver-directed therapy. For people who just have fat, they're at much lower risk for cirrhosis and liver cancer. So we should really just focus on kind of the, the lifestyle changes and maybe not a liver-specific medication. Though weight loss, 5% body weight loss can actually reduce liver fat. Okay. Yes? This ferret trouble, what, what role does that play in this, in this scenario? Can you repeat that? I'm sorry. Resveratrol. Oh, resveratrol. Got it. Yeah. So what role does resveratrol play in fatty liver? Um, 
it, it's not clear that it's necessarily beneficial. Um, it may, you know, it does seem to be an antioxidant, but um, it has not been well studied for treatment of fatty liver. I think you were next, yeah. Um, so two questions. It sounds like everybody with any of these conditions, uh, there is no person who is fit and slim. Mm, and question. the second question is, at what point would you say in that continuum are things absolutely irreversible? Mm. Can you reverse any part of the scarring? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the first question was, I'm going to kind of reword it, is every patient who has fatty liver, are they overweight or obese? No, but most are. Um, about 90 to 95% of patients with fatty liver disease are going to be overweight or obese. Um, there is kind of the subgroup of so-called lean NAFLD, normal weight, that we're learning a little bit more about. But the other thing that's really important is that absolute weight and BMI are not the most important things. You know, body composition is really important. And also thinking about different BMI thresholds for disease that may differ according to ethnic background. Uh, because we see in particular in Asian patients, there are lower body mass index thresholds at which those patients are at risk for things like diabetes and fatty liver disease. So I, again, I do have uh, patients, Asian and non-Asian, who have a BMI of 22, but they've got skinny little legs and every bit of their weight is in the belly. So I, I, look, I do look at the BMI, but I also look at the patient and what does the belly look like. Um, and then the other question was, well, how much of this is reversible and when do we get to the point of no return? Um, so definitely at the early stages, you know, NASH, early stage fibrosis, definitely up to stage two. Um, you know, I, we really think that the disease can be completely reversible. Um, at the point of cirrhosis, I think it's much less likely that you're going to go from cirrhosis to no fibrosis, but we think that the impact of you know, the weight loss, improved diet, exercise may at least help to stabilize liver disease where it is and prevent it from getting worse over time. With these newer drugs that may be coming out, they may actually be able to reverse liver fibrosis. But that, so the real holy grail with treatment of fatty liver is resolution of NASH, getting rid of fat, getting rid of inflammation, and reversing fibrosis. Though so if you look at the outcomes for some of the clinical trials, they will look at you know, resolution of NASH with no worsening of fibrosis or improvement of fibrosis at least. So there, there are different outcomes that, that um, they're looking at. And some drugs, interestingly, seem to reverse liver fibrosis but have no impact on NASH. So the treatment, you know, kind of beyond the lifestyle changes, with regard to the medications, it's probably going to end up being multiple medications because that picture, that cartoon that I showed you of the different potential targets, that is a super, super simplified version of all of the stuff that we already know. <laughs> and everything that we know, it, we, there's probably just as much that, that we don't know. So it's a very, very complex disease. And when you perturb one pathway, what do you do to something else? That, that's something we're still learning about. Question in the back. So I'm curious as to what is the dosage of the vitamin E that mm -hmm. you recommend here 
clients? Yep. So the dose of vitamin E for treatment of biopsy-proven NASH it is 800 international units daily. Um, the brand I recommend is Nature Made, in part because it's a reputable brand. Um, we feel good about the quality of their products, but also that was the brand that was actually used in that research study. But I don't recommend vitamin E if you haven't had a biopsy and you don't have NASH because you don't really need it. The harm is probably minimal, but there have been some studies demonstrating potential increased risk of prostate cancer, particularly at higher doses of vitamin E, and then potential for increased risk of bleeding. Okay. And behind you, there's another question. Um, is there any evidence that severe carb restriction or even a ketogenic diet Right. Great question. So um, what about severe carb restriction or even the ketogenic or keto diet, which I know is very popular these days? Um, so that's also not very well studied, at least in the long term. Um, I know the keto diet is definitely associated with weight loss in the short term and may help with fatty liver, but that has not been very well studied. The other problem I have with the keto diet is that it can be really, really tough to sustain. Um, some people can be on it for a long period of time, but most people, they're just like, oh, this is just gross. I can't eat this much fat day in and day out. Yes? Um, could you elaborate on why it's been so hard to develop a viable drug for NASH? Yeah. Because it seems like the pathways are pretty well described. So what has been the major challenge? Yeah, so why is it so darn hard to actually find a drug that works for this disease where we already know so much about the pathways? So, um, so there are so many different pathways. So there's insulin resistance, which is you know, part of diabetes. There is inflammation and a lot of kind of different inflammatory pathways. And there is fibrosis. Um, so you know, a lot of really smart people at some really, you know, top-notch pharmaceutical companies have been working on this. And I think because the disease is so complex and it's not just one pathway, I think that's why a lot of the drugs have failed thus far. Um, because a lot of the drugs really are kind of targeting one particular pathway um, and they're not hitting all of the different components. Um, combination therapy really is starting to be looked at. Um, and I think ultimately that, that is where we're headed. Yes. Uh, I think you raised your hand first. <laughs> so I'm curious as to how safe it is to do the biopsy because my concern would be uh, you know, how do you stop bleeding? Yeah. So uh, the question was uh, safety of liver biopsy. It's, it's actually a very safe procedure. Um, you know, the the issues that we would run into with serious bleeding is if you hit one of the blood vessels that runs in the rib. Um, and it's, it's extremely rare to have, you know, really serious life-threatening bleeding or bleeding um, that requires a blood transfusion. So um, besides taking drugs that aren't available yet, if you have significant fibrosis, say, in the three range, by living the life of the saint that you described, is it possible to reverse, to reverse the fibrotic scar? Yeah, so the question was, if you have, say, stage 3 fibrosis, if you do all of the things that I say, will that reverse fibrosis? Maybe. Um, you know, one of the problems is that very few people can actually 
um, have these sustained changes and have that sustained weight loss. Um, you know, I'm thinking about probably about two of my patients who have had su- substantial behavioral change, um, and they had. I think one had stage two, the other had stage three, and at least by fibro scan, one of them was rebiopsied. They actually have had reversal of fibrosis. So it can happen. Will it happen for everybody? Not necessarily. Um, but if you don't make the changes, then the concern is, well, that disease process is, is still ongoing. Back there. Um, you talked about how uh, people could be more at risk for breast cancer so the question was um, talking about increased risk of different cancers. Um, so you know we know that patients who have uh, diabetes and obesity are actually at increased risk um, of a variety uh, of uh, different malignancies, different cancers, and some of this may be related to insulin resistance, and that can have an impact on some of the genes that actually um, you know kind of modify the immune system or the immune surveillance uh, for cancer. Um, so that's really kind of the, the thought about why there may be more cancer in this patient population. Yes? Um, do you have any special advice for people who have an immediate family member who um, does have advanced cirrhosis due to NASH? So what's the advice for you know, a family member or anyone who has advanced liver disease or advanced fibrosis related to NASH? I would say re- refer them to a hepatologist for treatment. Oh. Or the person who doesn't have it yet. Oh, who doesn't have it yet. Sorry, I missed her. Okay, so strong family history of fatty liver disease. Um, what, what should they do? So the guidelines do not yet recommend surveillance or screening of family members who've, uh, who are related to someone who has had cirrhosis. Though, you know, again, I, I think you have to look at the individual person and, you know, if you happen to get liver enzymes and they're elevated or if you happen to have an ultrasound or MRI and they saw fat in the liver, um, you know, I think that really does warrant referral to hepatology. Um, just because of the genetic link um, uh, of fatty liver disease. And some genes have been identified um, that are associated with a more aggressive uh, disease, phenotype or disease progression. Um, So while we don't necessarily recommend it widely, if I hear, oh, you know, my, my mother or my father had cirrhosis and they never touched alcohol in their life and you have fatty liver, I'm, I'm going to be more likely to kind of keep following you in my clinic rather than kind of dismissing you back to primary care. Yes? Let's say that I'm uh, at reduced risk for cancer. Let's say I'm confident in that, and uh, I'm feeling fine, um, and I've got a roaring case of fatty liver disease, but I'm asymptomatic, and I may not even know and I don't really care because I can drink all I want knowing that my any cirrhosis I'm going to get is so, you know, any consequences are going to be way in the future. Why should I care? Mm. So why, so why should you care about fatty liver? So um, and just kind of do whatever, and something's going to happen in the future. So, you know, we do we do diagnose a lot of people with cirrhosis 
who have had no symptoms at all. And we, we find out because they went in for a gallbladder surgery or hernia surgery, and then afterwards they show up to us bright yellow, or they've got a lot of fluid in their belly because their liver is now failing because they had that stressor of surgery. So if you have cirrhosis, even if you have zero symptoms, I hope that that will continue to be the case. But if you have cirrhosis, you are at risk for liver cancer. Again, six and a half to 15% risk over you know, five to 10 years. You are at greater risk of developing liver failure. Are we good enough to figure out, well, this is your specific individual risk? No. But you definitely shouldn't drink because that is going to contribute to ongoing liver damage and increase your risk of liver cancer. I think you had a question over here. Okay. Is non impact exercise equal to um, weight bearing exercise, like a jog in the pool? So, is that equal to weight bearing exercise? Yeah, so the question was kind of type of exercise. Is the you know, high impact um, or weight bearing exercise, um, is that necessary or can it be non impact? So, resistance training, not exactly what you were um, talking about, kind of like a water aerobics or swimming. Um, that, you know, as long as it is increasing your heart rate or you're doing some sort of resistance with the water kind of being like your, your point of resistance, um, it should be beneficial. The water aerobics hasn't been well studied for, for fatty liver. Though, again, any exercise is good. Um, whether it kind of really reaches that threshold of moderate or vigorous, I think it, it really depends on exactly what you're doing and how much you feel like you're exerting yourself. If you're getting into kind of like that yellow-orange range of that cartoon, then, yes, it probably is good enough. Yes. Uh, when I was a teenager, we used to have diet pills. Mm. Um, and I was just thinking, you would think that that would be such a money-making um, pharmaceutical mm-hmm. to have appetite suppressants. So why? Are there no diet pills? Right. So, so what about diet pills. Um, so a lot of appetite suppressants, particularly kind of the older ones, um, have actually been shown to have some problems. Um, like Fenfen um, has been associated with cardiac heart problems. Um, there are drugs that are being used for weight loss. Um, and again, you know, some of them do carry certain side effects. Um, there is one drug that's actually used to treat uh, diabetes that also is approved for management of weight loss and also may have an impact on fatty liver, though that's based on a very, very small trial. Um, the medicine called, brand name is Victoza or generic liraglutide. Um, so that that may be beneficial, but there are other weight loss drugs that may actually work on, you know, kind of behavior. Um, there's a combination drug, uh, bupropion or Welbutrin, um, and uh, naloxone. It's called Contrave. Um, I think one of the barriers is that insurance companies don't always cover these drugs. Um, I think you also have to be connected to someone who has expertise in weight management. Um, so I, I think there certainly is a role for, for drug therapy, but I think you, you kind of have to find the right drug for a particular person and then get it covered by insurance. Yes? Um, does not having a gallbladder, does that make any difference in the risk for progression? 
Right. So what if you don't have your gallbladder? Is that going to affect your fatty liver or progression of liver disease? Absolutely not. Gallbladder is an extra organ. It just stores bile. When you get rid of it, it, it doesn't have any impact on liver function at all. Yes? The incidence in children that have risk factors is that study. Yeah, yeah. So fatty liver, unfortunately, is being seen in a lot of kids. Um, not quite at the same prevalence as in adults, but it's it's getting there. Um, so it's a huge problem because then ultimately these kids are going to become adults with fatty liver, and they will become adults with cirrhosis. And we have patients in our practice who are in their 20s, and they have cirrhosis from fatty liver. Um, so it's... It, this problem is going to get worse before it gets better. Yes? Oh, um, do you have recommendations for how I can find resources specific to fatty liver and my ethnicity? Good question. So um, ethnic-specific resources for fatty liver. Um, I am not aware of any off the top of my head, but I... I think it's really needed, and one thing I always think about with dietary counseling is when I'm counseling a patient where culturally rice is a staple of the diet, and I'm talking about, well, decrease the amount of rice, eat fewer carbohydrates, that that may not be culturally appropriate. Um, So I think that's something that really uh, warrants additional work for sure, Um, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Sorry. You had a question? So the question was about, um, is there an association between congestive heart failure and fatty liver disease? Not directly. Um, congestive heart failure does not cause fatty liver. But if the heart failure was caused by coronary artery disease that was worsened because of diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, then fatty liver may also be present. But the two do not directly link to each other. Yeah. One more. Yeah. Um, does liver, fatty liver involve um, type 2 diabetes that, that your cells become resistant to the... It's, yeah. Um, so what is the link between fatty liver and type 2 diabetes? So there's this bidirectional relationship. Um, you know, in people who have diabetes, they're at increased risk for fatty liver. But if you have fatty liver, that can also increase your later risk of development of diabetes. And some of it is related to um, tissue and liver sensitivity to insulin. Um, so, yes, <laughs> they're linked. All right, I think we are about out of time. So I want to thank all of you uh, for coming out today. You've asked some really great questions, and I'm, I'm really happy to be talking with you guys today. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.